0: warning. Am I muted here, down on my end, or is it on? Ferlene, thank you so much for filling in while Kathleen is recovering from her surgery. Give her a better round of applause while I try and... Really just stalling, Ferleen. I can't get my iPad to connect. No, Ferlene. you know, Ferleen, we've watched you grow up. And one of the wonderful things about watching people grow up in the church, like you've watched, I'm sure you've, many of you are saying the irony that he's talking about watching people grow up in the church, is that you get to see how they mature. You get to see how they grow. But here's the thing about Ferlene. Do you know how long she's been serving in the choir? Ferlene, where are you? Where'd you go? How long have you been serving in the choir? Because I don't know. I just asked the church. Do You know and they don't know. Six years. She's 17. Right? 18. <laughs> she was serving since she was 12. Thank you for your service. We appreciate that. <laughs> Praise God. Knowing God. It is the foundation of our faith. Not simply to know about God, not simply to know of a God, but to know God as He is. This morning, I want to talk about an aspect of God's nature. An aspect of God's work that has for some reason become a controversial aspect. And that is that God is a saving Lord. I'm excited to preach this sermon. I am eager to share with you what it means to worship a saving Lord. Would you pray with me? Father and Lord God, we come to you this morning to give you all praise. 100% praise. Not 99% praise, but 100% praise. Because Because, Lord, it is not within man who walks to direct his own steps. It is you who have given us The ability to believe and to receive the gift of your Son. So we praise you this morning. You are not simply the God who gives us favor in this life, but you are the God who saves sinners. We are not simply unworthy, we are completely unworthy of any and all of your grace. It is not simply that we have not earned your grace. It is that we have done everything to not earn, to demerit your favor. Lord, we deserve your punishment. Lord, if it weren't for you turning us from our wicked ways, we would still be walking a path to death. It is you we praise this morning and you alone... We do not come with any works of our hands, so that we may not boast in the flesh, but we may boast in the God, who is the saving Lord. Father, we praise you this morning. Let us live our lives in light of the mercies of God, in sacrificial service to you, loving you and loving others for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is a beautiful faith. I use the word beautiful because beautiful means not only that it is complete, but that it is orderly. It is complete, it is orderly, and it is wonderful. It is free from evil. It is free from wretchedness. It is simply... A beautiful faith. And at the core of our Christian faith is this very, very basic truth. And this basic truth is simply this. That God saves sinners. The reason why we come here once a week and lift up our voices singing... In major keys, not in minor keys. And celebrating is because we celebrate a God who saves sinners. We don't come to celebrate ourselves. We don't come to worship ourselves or human ingenuities. We don't come to pat ourselves on the back, to stand on our feet, but to fall on our face. And to worship a God who saved sinners. Who saves not just people who don't deserve it, but people who are most undeserving. The Bible tells us, while we were enemies of God, that Christ died for us. It wasn't simply that Christ died for us because... We were favorable to him because we were his friends, but we were his enemies. No one can even fathom such an idea. We have a hard enough time asking ourselves, would we lay down our lives for our loved one or for our brother or for our friends? But all of us would say we won't lay down our lives for our enemies. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ died for us While we were yet sinners, the word sinner doesn't mean bad person. That's not what it means. Sin is not about missing the mark, it is about offending holy God. The mark is a person, it's not a ledger, it's not a rule guide. I remember when I went to high school and when I went to middle school and elementary, there was always this chart on the wall, and it was the classroom rules no chewing gum. Don't drink, don't chew, or run with boys and girls who do. There was some kind of rhyme or acrostic to it. And we would look at that chart and say, I'm going to disobey everything on that chart. That's not what God has done for us. That's not our relationship with Him. Our relationship is one where we have severed the very relationship. There is no relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Sin is the offense against the Holy God. It separates us. It drives a wedge, a perfect chasm, an uncrossable chasm between God and man that we, left to our own devices, have no ability to ever reach for God sin is to reject God it is not simply breaking commands it is the rejecting the God who has given the commands there are men and women all over the world who reject God and yet try and keep his commands you can talk with atheists and they'll tell you i'm not a murderer I'm not a rapist. I'm not a thief. All things which God has forbidden in His covenant, yet they reject God. The chief sin is rejecting God. But the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The foundational truth of the Christian faith is that God has saved you. God saves sinners. Maybe you don't sing as loudly when we sing our songs because you have not grasped that truth. That you're undeserving, completely undeserving, that your debt is completely unpayable. Maybe that's why you don't sing so loudly, because you don't understand just what this Christian faith is. And I'm telling you that the first step to understanding the Christian faith is agreeing and believing this truth. God saves sinners. It is the gospel. Do you know the word gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion? And it simply, at its most basic uh, definition, means news. It's just news. News about what? That God saves sinners. That is what it means to believe the gospel. When Jesus departed... He gave his apostles a commission and he said, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things which I command. They were to go into the world and to preach the gospel, to tell the news. In Acts chapter 1, 8, Jesus said, My Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? News. What is that news? News. God saves sinners around this country and around this world today, but especially in this country. Sermon after sermon after sermon is going to be preached this morning that has nothing to do with God saving sinners. That is not the gospel. It's going to be preached about how to make your grass greener. By the way, we don't need that preached. That rain you got this morning going to make your grass very very green. Especially when that sun comes out tomorrow. They're telling us how to get rich and how to have our best life now, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God saves sinners. You say you keep saying that. I want it to be ingrained in you. God saves sinners. This is a doctrine that we must handle very carefully, but it is a doctrine that we cannot neglect. For all worship, all faith, all obedience depends upon this understanding, that God saves sinners. Do you know what the Reformation was fought over? That God saves sinners. That it is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, that we're saved. That you can pay as much money as you want, pray as many Hail Marys as you can, count as many rosaries, attend as many masses, kiss as many relics as you want, and none of that will save you. Because God saves sinners. This is a beautiful faith. This faith has come to be known as Calvinism. Some say I thought it was Christianity. It is, and as the late Charles Haddon Spurgeon pointed out, Calvinism is simply a nickname for the gospel. It was the right understanding that God is in 100% complete control of your salvation. And J.I. Packer, who is one of the leading Calvinists, says this. For Calvinism, there is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology. That word soteriology... ...simply means the study of salvation. If I asked you this morning... ...what would you have to do to not be a Christian... ...how many of you could answer that question this morning? What does it take? In church A, they embrace gay marriage. In church B, they don't believe that hell is a real place. They believe in annihilation. Or they believe that ultimately love wins as Rob Bell teaches... In another church they have decided not to talk about sin because sin is unpleasant and they leave that for other pastors to do and to 43,500 people they preach that you can have your best life now. What does it have? What are the final and And essential, necessary parts of salvation. That's what soteriology is. It asks the question, what is the study of what God has done for us? And at its most basic level, it is simply this, that God saves sinners. He says, for Calvinism, there's really only one point to be made in the field of salvation study. The point that God saves sinners. That is to say that the triune God does everything. Not 99% and you take that leap of faith. It is everything. First to last. That is involved in bringing man from death to sin to life and glory. He plans our salvation. He achieves and communicates redemption. He calls and He keeps, He justifies, He sanctifies, He glorifies. This is the point of Calvinistic soteriology, which the quote-unquote five points are concerned to establish and to argue against Arminianism in all its forms, which denies, namely, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all. This is what Calvinism says We deny that sinners can save themselves in any sense at all. But affirm that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past and present and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen, says Packer. God is holy Lord, sovereign Lord covenantal Lord and he has revealed himself as the saving Lord. He is not simply the Lord of heaven and earth but the Lord of everything in heaven and on earth including your destiny. That's what it means to be Lord. It means to be in charge. And the Bible declares a God who is in charge from first to last to the greatest to the least of everything, everything that you have, every good deed that you've ever done in the name of Christ and to glorify God. God has prepared in advance for you to do. Ephesians 2.10. The Bible says that we are his workmanship. That word there, workmanship, means like forming Like the way a a potter would form. Have you ever watched a a person throw pottery? They, They form it. They just move their hands. And guess what that pot looks like at the end? Whatever the potter wants it to look like. And should he decide to take that pot and throw it into the flames for his glory, he can do it. Should he decide to keep it and put it into a place of prominence, he can do it. But all is to his glory and all is his prerogative. Does not the potter have the right to choose one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Romans 9. The Bible says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to live out good works. Which he, God, prepared in advance for us to do. This week, I did a really good deed. I felt so good about myself. I bought a homeless guy lunch. I felt so good about myself. And God then just began to little by little by little show me all the wickedness that was there. Like the fact that when I saw the homeless man at the gas station, I was hiding behind the pump because I didn't want him to ask me for money. Because here in this ministry, we constantly have vampires. They're coming around to suck all of our money away. To call us up. They don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. But to call us up and ask for $800 to pay their rent. And then the moment we say we're not that type of institution, they call us not Christians. And so I've become jaded. Unforgiving. And I saw the homeless guy and I started to duck behind the gas. I didn't want to give him any money. Add on top of that that I have a nervousness about shaking homeless people's hands. to something about it. Maybe you're much further along than I am. But all I could think about was, am I going to get his germs? I know hygiene is not on the top of his list. I'm rotten to the core. No glory. What glory do I get? I did it because the Holy Spirit, despite my sin, reminded me of the covenant that the saving Lord has made with us. That we are His workmanship and I do not belong to myself. But He has given me freedom, complete freedom to obey Him. We bought him lunch. We found out that he had had a stroke. And he couldn't help how he was. To put the cherry on top, God not only showed me that I was selfish and jaded. Not only showed me that I was afraid when I should have been faithful. But that I'm a jerk on top of it all. Maybe you're better than me. I thank God that I'll stand before him one day. And I will say, by Christ alone, I put my faith and trust that you will save me. God is the saving Lord. No flesh will glory in his presence. The good you think you're doing, the faith you think you're enacting all on your own, it's God. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to do what? Will it and act it. If he didn't will it in my heart, if he didn't act it out, I wouldn't have done it. You see, when we Embrace the truth that God saves sinners. The object of our worship becomes Him in everything. Everything. Look at Ephesians 1 3 through 14. For those of you who are Up to date on this particular debate between whether or not God saves us or we save ourselves by faith. You'll be surprised that I've chosen verses 1, 3 through 14 rather than 2, 1 through 10. Since Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is probably the chief among Calvinist texts. But I've chosen this one to prove my point this morning. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What Paul is about to do is he is about to read one 14 verse, excuse me, 11 verse sentence. Paul does not care about run-on sentences. And the first word that he uses there, the word blessed is only ever in the New Testament used to refer to God and God alone. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with some spiritual blessing. No, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has chosen us before you ever fed the homeless person, before you ever. Ever made the right choice before you ever did a single good deed, God chose you even before the stars in the heavens were laid in their foundation. You tell me, does that what that text says? Who chose us? God chose us in him in Christ. Before even the world was laid, it means that even the world itself, God's purpose in creation is not simply to create, but His purpose in creation is to redeem it. That He might be glorified in His redemption. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Notice that in your Bible, the word Beloved is capitalized. It's because it's referring to Christ. That in every blessing in the heavenly realm, that before the foundations were laid, even when we can't see Him in this present moment, and in the future which we cannot see, because we live in only the ever-present, that God has blessed us. He has saved us from before the foundation. He is saving us now, and He will save us in the end. It is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. All that the Father has given to me. Will come to me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Christian. If you are in Christ this morning. You are going nowhere. God will complete your salvation. One of the most. Strange things I've seen in the last four years as Christians. When asked the question, are you certain that if you were to die today, you would spend eternity in heaven with Christ? That Christians are not certain of that. Why? Because you have not believed the gospel that God saves sinners. You're still living with the fear that you save yourself. God saved you. While you were a sinner. He goes on. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses... What trespasses? The ones we've done up until this moment? No, because God is not the God of trespasses of the past, but of the trespasses of the past, of the trespasses of the present, and of the trespasses of the future. You say, Will I commit sins in the future? Yes, you will. Are they forgiven? In Christ. according to the riches of his grace which he lavished that word lavish means imagine it's like you're being it's like you're being just drowned in god's lavishness it's like you're just being it's just being poured out on you "...in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose." Whose will? God's. Whose purpose? God's. "...which He set forth in Christ." Who set forth in Christ? God. "...as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth." So this is a complete plan of God to unite all things, to save all things, to redeem all things. "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance." Having been predestined. That word predestined means that God has selected your destiny before you were even born. In fact, before the world itself was laid. According to what? According to the works that he would see us do in the future? No, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God did not look into the future and see the good deed that you were going to do and say, that Bob, that Bob is a guy I can hang out with. I'll save him. No, he saves the most despicable people. Just look in the mirror. Listen, my parents, God bless them. They were the most positive people. I could come home, teachers who were my teachers, I'm going to reveal this to you. I could walk home and tell my parents I got in trouble with a teacher today and tell them it was 100% my fault and they would say, I don't believe it, you're a good boy, Andrew, and go up here and defend me. That's what they'd say. No, I don't believe it, son, you're a good boy, Andrew, I don't believe it. And my mother, I'm going to get in my Lincoln Town car. I'm going to drive up to that church. And my dad, Sandra, I'm telling you, they really believed it. I had them fooled. Listen to me. Do not listen to your parents' moral approval of you. God says all of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. Your mama may think you're fine, but God says the wages of your sin is death. He didn't look in the future and see your good deeds. He looked in the future and saw rebels, sinners. People who did not seek after him. No one seeks after God. No, not one. So that we were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth... The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Interesting phrase here. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promised for who? Promised for God's elect. Isn't that what the scripture says up at the beginning? That God chose us in him? Who would he choose? Those who he promised he would send his Holy Spirit to. At a definite moment in time. And they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Wait a minute. I thought we were saved. But it says that we're going to acquire possession of that salvation at a later date. We are already saved and have been given the Holy Spirit now as a temporary guarantee to the fulfillment of our glorification in the future. Why? All, all, at the very last phrase, to the praise of His glory. God is the saving Lord. Let me give you my summary statement of this passage. God alone is the saving Lord. Paul begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, no matter what side of the street you stand on on this particular debate, you cannot deny that all praise has to go to God. None to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us. Why is Paul praising God? Because he chose us. Our salvation is accomplished by and through the work of the triune Godhead. It is the God and Father who chose us in Christ and has given us the guaranteer, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit to fulfill in us until the time of our true salvation is complete, of our full salvation. This is a triune work. The father elects. The son redeems his elect. And the spirit seals the elect. It originates before the foundation of the world. It is accomplished in time and space. And it is promised and will be accomplished in the future. Furthermore, the reality of our salvation is already and not yet. God's blessings, says the passage, verse 5, have been lavished upon us in heavenly places once and for all. That is, before God, your account is settled in Christ. Settled once and for all. Do you know that Catholic theology teaches you can lose your salvation? Do you know that many Baptist churches teach that you can lose your salvation? But the Bible tells us that our account has been settled where? In the heavenly places, in the heavenly courtroom, but before the Almighty Judge, the one who judges all sins. It's been settled. Once and for all. Through the one work on the cross of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yet, while these blessings are already real and available to us, they will not yet be attained until the fullness of time where God will unite all things to Christ. Paul said in this time between the times, the time between the moment of our salvation in real space and time and the moment of our consummation when our salvation is complete, between this time it is a struggle and we wait eagerly, the Bible tells us that the creation waits eagerly and groans inwardly for the sons of God to be revealed. We, this past Wednesday, we buried a fellow sister in Christ. She died. There are churches all around the world who don't even tell you that we're going to die one day. They don't even talk about death because that's unpleasant. But the Bible tells us that our salvation... While it is certain, because we worship a God who fulfills his promises, it's not yet complete. The good news is, the best life is not this one. Shame on you, pastor, for saying that you can have your best life now. The Bible says, no, your best life is yet to come. Because God has promised that those who he foreknew, he has also predestined. Predestined to be his sons, to be adopted, to be justified. That means forgiven once and for all. And those whom he foreknew, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. You know, this body of death that is subject to death and decay... Is one day going to be born out of incorruptible or uh, out of corruptible flesh into incorruptible flesh? You can't have your best life now. Christian, if you're living for your best life now, the life to come is hell. You understand? Because the better life to come is the completion of your salvation. You have not received all of the promises yet. They are guaranteed to happen. But they're not yet. Why? Because God's going to unite all things to Christ. All for His glory. I want to read to you what the Christians who went before us have said. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Article 3, Paragraph 5 The London Baptist Confession says this. Those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Is that biblical? Amen. According to His eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. Is that not what we just read? He chose them in Christ For eternal glory, purely as a result of his free grace and love. Did you read at any point in there where God looked into the future and saw that you would be a good person and you would choose him if the circumstances were favorable? No. He simply chose you because he wanted to. Without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause, moving him to do so. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Why? Listen to this. Why? The reason why is so that in heeding the will of God revealed in his word and obeying him, we may be assured. Too many of you are living today with doubt that you're saved. I want you to leave this morning with the confidence That should someone ever ask you the question again, do you know that if you were to die today, you would spend eternity in heaven with Christ, that you answer that with a firm yes. No more doubt. John in his first epistle tells us throughout the epistle, we can know we are saved. You do not have to live in doubt and fear, but you can begin to worship God. Paul talked about rejoicing in the Lord. Where has our rejoicing gone? It's gone right out the window with the doctrine of a saving Lord. But when we embrace a saving Lord, we worship God. He says here, We may be assured of their eternal election by certainty of their effectual calling. In this way, the doctrine will give reasons for praise, for reverence and admiration of God, as well as humility, diligence and rich comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. Well, how do we sincerely obey the gospel? The canons of Dort, which is one of the foundational documents of Calvin theology, Calvinist theology, says this, that the elect that special group of people which God chose or predestined from before the foundation of the world, the elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of their eternal, unchangeable election, not by inquisitively prying into the secret and deep things of God. In other words, we don't know why God chose us. Don't waste another moment of your life asking, why did God choose me? Don't waste another moment. It is a waste. You'll never answer the question. God chose, I'm going to give you the answer and go on about your life. God chose you because he wanted to. What did the scripture say this morning? According to whose will? His. Did he tell you what it was? Nope. You know God doesn't choose you because you're white. Some people teach that. You know God doesn't choose you because you're black. Some people teach that. God's not on your side because you're poor. God's not on your side because you're rich. God doesn't love you more because you're a man. And he doesn't love you any less because you're a woman. God chose you because he wanted to choose you. That's the answer Leave it there and begin to obey and praise Him. It is a wicked theology that tells us that God is on the side of any particular people. He is not on the side of the poor and the oppressed any more than He's on the side of the rich. Because He, what does He tell us to do? He begs us to buy from him gold refined in fire. We are rich in so many ways in America America, and impoverished in our theology. Yesterday, I have a sin to confess. Um, My wife, the woman that God gave me, led me into this sin. I got up and we had on the royal wedding. And I watched a little bit of it. And they sang, I don't remember what the hymn was they sang. Who wants to confess their sin? Does anybody remember the hymn that they were singing? What? Wow, wow. Mm hmm. Good thing salvation's by grace. What was it? What was the hymn? Okay. It sounded, I don't know. Anyway, I just I heard the beautiful voices singing, and I saw the beautiful cathedral, and I, I saw it, it was so beautiful. And I thought to myself, they're so rich. But the Bible says they are poor in spirit if they don't believe what they're saying. They're poor in their in the spiritual realm if they don't believe the very things they're singing. Do you believe what you're singing this morning? Do you believe what I'm preaching this morning about God saving you? Well, if so, it ought to deepen your affections. Let me not belabor the point. The canon says this, "...by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as true faith in Christ..." is a filial fear, a godly sorrow for sin, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In other words, this doctrine is not a dead doctrine. It is a doctrine that produces fruit. Until you confess that God has done 100% in your life, you can never serve Him truly. Look at what, I love this, what it says. What does this produce? A true faith in Christ. Let's look at what this means. What is true faith in Christ? Number one, it means it is correctly understood. Why did Jesus come to die? So that you didn't have to die instead of him. If you can accomplish salvation by your works, then there's no point to Christ dying. He just died. He's not significant. Guess what? He's like everybody else. Everybody else died. But Christ died on your behalf. That is a correct understanding of who Christ is. It is a true faith in Christ. And what this doctrine provides for us is a true understanding of the work that was accomplished on our behalf on the cross. Not only that, it is rightly placed. Where is our faith to be placed? In someone other than ourselves. True faith in Christ, not in you. But not only that, it is uniquely in Christ. It is not simply an understand, the correct understanding, but it must be placed in another, and that other person is only one, uniquely one, true God of God, true man of man, Jesus Christ. No one else can save you. Filial fear. This doctrine produces in us a filial fear. What does that mean? It means that we are adopted sons and daughters. We are not begotten. I hear people tell me this all the time. We're all God's children. No, we are not. Listen to me. Let me say this again because I know how popular this false teaching is. We are not all God's children. Let me say it again a third time. We are not all God's children. You know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. Sorry. You know, these days, I want to know what's going on over there. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said. We are not the children of God by virtue of being born a human being. We are adopted in Christ. You want to be God's child? You have to be adopted by God. You don't get to be God's child by virtue of being born. You get to be God's child by virtue of the Father adopting you. Put a little bit more respect and reverence for what God has done in you. When you understand that God did not have to choose you by your being born. But he adopted you. Filial means that it's a son. It's a daughter fear. It's the way we fear our fathers. You know, I'm afraid of my father. My father had uh, two strokes and a heart attack. I'm still afraid of him. I still think he could kick my butt. Is that, a, is that appropriate to say in church? I don't know. I, sorry. Kick my hiney. You guys know you don't say either of them at your house. <laughs> Physician, heal thyself. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I still have this reverence for him. We were at a, uh, after he had his heart attack, we were there a couple months later, and uh, he was in a wheelchair, and we went to the zoo. He was fighting. I'm not going to any zoo. Stephanie's like, Papa, you're going to the zoo. And I'm like, shut up. Don't say another word. He's going to cut you down. So he finally got, (laughs) he listened to Stephanie and he went with us, and he was in this wheelchair, and... <laughs> you know him. You can see him. Uh-huh. Yeah, son, I've seen the tiger before. <laughs> when are we going home? We've been here for at least five minutes. So I'm pushing him, and I dumped him out of the wheelchair on accident, and he fell over. <laughs> I couldn't breathe. He just rolled like a, like a, like it was just dead weight, just And he just laid there. And I felt so bad and I was afraid. So we quickly picked him up and we put him back in the, we put him back in the, in the uh, chair. And all I could think about was not only did I, like, is he going to do something? Is he going to like take a swing at me or something? But I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've dishonored my father. I've dishonored him. I've never seen my father fall. My father's strong. He never cried in front of me. He was a man. And I've never seen him so weak. There was a fear there. A real fear. That I had dishonored my father. And thank God he made fun of me the rest of the day. Son, is that a cougar up here? Well, just dump me out on the floor. And that's all he said the rest of the day. Oh, I see a parrot. Just dump me out on the floor and I'll look at the parrot. It's not that I'm not afraid of my dad like I'm afraid of that guy who was jiggling on that door just a second ago. You know what I'm talking about. You know that fear that your mom and dad have, that you have of your parents, and they can just look at you know you could probably take him, but there's something about him. There's something about him. You want to please him. Well, I want to please a good father. How much more, my heavenly father? Do you see the point? If God doesn't save sinners, why do I want to please him? I did it. But he did it. I want to please him. I want him to love me. I want him to know I love him. I don't want to dishonor him because he saved me. I'm sorry if you had a bum for a father, but that's not God. He is the good and holy father, and he loves you, and he's worth pleasing. He won't abandon you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You are adopted. You are in baby in. You are never. He is never going to cast you off. He'll never reject you. He adopted you. We're sons and daughters. We have to have a childlike reverence. I want to please him. I want to love him. He cares for me. Everything I have is from him. Dare I say, even my life is from Him. Well, our spiritual life is from God, too. Jesus told Nicodemus, you want to be saved? You must be born again. Now, the last time I checked, you didn't tell your parents to have you born, did you? Well, you didn't tell God to make you born again, either. God chose you from before the foundation of the world. Not only that, it gives us a godly sorrow for sin... This doctrine that God says sinners should produce in us a godly sorrow for sin. What does it mean? It means first and foremost that we identify our sins. That we know that our sins are real. Think about it. Stop patting yourself on the back. Have a healthy fear. And a healthy understanding that you are sinner. Identify sin. But not only that, see your sin as God sees it. How does the Bible describe your sins? All right, let me give you a better way. Here's how the Bible describes your righteousness. If it describes your righteousness this way, just think about what it could say about your sins. Here's what the Bible says: your righteousness is like filthy rag. Do you know what the word actually means? We're all adults. I don't want to be more holy than God. The word means menstruation rags. Hear it. Hear that the best thing you can give to God is nothing but a bloody rag. It's disgusting to God. Everything you have is disgusting. Even your act of faith that you think was wrought in you was wrought by him. Nothing you can give him is pleasing to him. Remember what God said when the Jews were going to build a temple? Oh, you're going to build me a temple? What house shall you build for me? The universe that says the heavens is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And you're going to give God something? You will give him nothing. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. Not just dirty, but demonstrably disgusting. See your sin as God sees it. It's that rotten. It's so rotten that it put his son on a cross. And this should move you to repentance. A godly sorrow for sin is not a sorrow that I got caught, but a sorrow that I have dishonored my father. My father. I remember one time, I don't remember what stupid thing I did this time, but I did a lot of them. And I remember one time, you know, he had this voice. He sounded like God when he talked. Andrew! And there was just like, I, I, it was like I could hear thunder quaking in the house when he would say it. And, you know, we used to do, uh, we, we did spankings in our house. You can't call HRS now. He'd, and we'd do it corporally. We'd I'd have to bend over and, you know, we'd, now, son, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it hurts me. That's what he would say. Did you hear that? It's going to hurt you more than it hurts me. One day he, he reared back to spank me and he hit the wall and he said, get around on the other side. I can't get a good swing. Pretty funny. Um, and he'd give me a spanking. And, and I remember one time I did something really bad. And I thought, Oh boy, he's taking away my car. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do. He's going to punch me or something like that. He never hit me, but I, I didn't know what he was going to do. And I went downstairs. He had we had this little study. He had this little study, and he'd sit there, and he'd always have a pen cap in his mouth and a pen, and he'd be writing. And he said to me this one time, he knew that I had done it. He put the pen cap back on the pen, and he never looked at me, and he said, I'm disappointed in you. That was it. I didn't get grounded. I got in my car. He didn't take it away. But I disappointed my father. The man who loved me, and I never could do any wrong in his eyes, I disappointed him. He didn't have to pull out a paddle. Is it enough this morning for God to look at you and say, I'm disappointed? You're not glorifying me. There are some of you this morning who sit in these very pews who have not repented of God. And God is telling you, I'm disappointed in you. You've fallen short. Broke my heart. God wants us to have that sorrow for our sin. We have offended His holy God. What this finally produces in us is this a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You know, growing up, I didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. And a lot of times I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Especially when I stop reading my Bible for a period of time. Because it's too hard. I don't want to follow any rules. Rules are too hard to keep those rules. I want to hate my neighbor. I want to hold that grudge against my fellow Christian. I don't want to forgive him. But the Bible says... That we've been created in Christ to do good works. Do we hunger and thirst for these good works? David said he panted for God. he Like a deer pants for streams. But to pant for God is to need Him. It is to thirst for Him. And to be in Him, you must be righteous. If God saves sinners... And we grasp that as the wonderful, beautiful, beautiful doctrine it is. We will hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does this mean? It begins first and foremost with obedience. You know, when I fed that homeless fellow earlier in the week, it started with fear, it started in sin. What did the scriptures remind me? Where did I see you hungry? There was a hungry man. But after we prayed with him, we found out he had had a stroke. It was a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful blessing, but it didn't begin with a right feeling, it began by obedience. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. You may not want to submit to him. What does that have to do with obedience? As unto the Lord. Submit to your husbands, wives. Wives or husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. When did Christ give himself up for her? The moment he was conceived as human flesh. Christ's entire life was a devotion. Giving himself to us. For the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, your wife nags a lot. Yes, you'd rather be in the wood wood shop cleaning I mean, wood shop working on your wood projects rather than cleaning the house because she needs it cleaned every single day. Not my wife, of course. Not my wood shop, of course. But that's what she needs. And I've been told to serve her. To live for her. Men tell me all the time, oh, I'll die for my wife. Great, will you live for her? Because that's much harder. Your pride will put you in front of a gun between, you, between a robber and your wife, your pride will put you there 100% of the time. I have no doubt in that. But will it get you home with your kids rather than out at the pool place with your boys drinking beer? Will it get you to stop cheating on her? Will it get you to get rid of the pornography in your life? It's not about feeling. The Christian life begins with obedience. God, I'm going to do it even though, even though right now I don't feel it. You're not going to feel it. You have to walk on faith and you have to obey. From here it grows into discipline. It moves past just a moment And it moves into a common life so that this is what we do constantly. But from here, where it begins in obedience, grows into discipline, it ends here. It results in a new appetite for God. You see, when we obey God we find out that his way is better than any way man has ever conceived of. God has this this nuisance, this real hard one, about not fornicating. That's sex outside of marriage. And we think he's a cosmic killjoy. He's going to rob us of all of these earthly sexual pleasures. Why would he give me these desires, either for an opposite sex or the same sex, if I can't fulfill them? And we think that because we have these feelings, that we should fulfill those urges. That's what your teachers in the public school tell you. It's what your non-believing relatives tell you that if you have these urges, you should go and experiment and fulfill those urges. And God says no, and he sounds like the old curmudgeon, the boring cosmic killjoy. Satan never shows you the results of your sin. He only shows you the pleasures and never shows you what you're going to have in the end. He doesn't show you the AIDS, the unwanted pregnancies. He doesn't show you the broken families. He doesn't show you the kids who join gangs and form gangs because their daddies aren't at home, because it was only ever a one-night stand, and because he was too dumb and lazy to stop off at CVS. He decided that he would be rogue and play a game with God, and God will not be mocked. And now that child who has no father is now joined a gang, has become a menace to society. But you know what else he doesn't show you? The beautiful relationship that you form with your wife that goes beyond sex. When you stand there with your parents and you hold his hand, your father's hand, as he lays there dead and your wife stands there holding your hand. He doesn't show you the beauty of children who love to see mommy and daddy loving each other. He doesn't show you the beauty of a faithful woman who loved her husband to the day she died, to the day he died, and what that meant in the children who stood at this very pulpit and praised the Lord Jesus Christ because of the faith of their grandmother and the faithful marriage that now they carry on. God's not going to give you all that. He's not going to show you the future. What he's going to tell you to do right now, this very moment, is obey. God is the saving Lord. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be glorified. He is worthy to be obeyed. Let's pray.